Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. Today on the CMO Podcast, we are trying something new. I am pairing a senior client with an agency creative director to talk about their partnership and their relationship. Think of it as a blueprint for your partnerships on your brand. We are, after all, in the season of the Can Lions Awards, where the industry celebrates the best collaborations between agencies and clients. My guests today are John Hall and Atish Shah. John was formerly the head of marketing for Gen Air Luxury Appliances and is now the director of market strategy for the Whirlpool Corporation, which owns Gen Air, among many other brands. John was on the CMO podcast last June, and I highly recommend that episode. Atish Shah is the chief creative officer for Digitas North America, a leading marketing and technology agency. John and Ati recently worked together on the dramatic, provocative repositioning of Gen Air, the luxury appliance brand that had lost its luster over the years. Today, Gen Air is a hot brand again, and recently won a gold effie for its breakthrough in marketing creativity and effectiveness. We will get a behind-the-scenes look at the powerful partnership between these two leaders that brought new life and accelerated growth to an old, tired brand. This is my conversation with John Hall and Atee Shah. Welcome, Atee, to the CMO Podcast. And John, welcome back to the podcast. And I want to start this one by having you introduce each other by describing the special leadership gift each one of you has. Atee, I'm going to start with you. Sorry about that. Absolutely. I, I'm honored. I, John. John's the one who made the call uh, to make this happen on my behalf. And so that speaks volume. So John is a great connector. Um, he's a client bar none when it comes to the passion department. He is not an automated uh, brief giver that just kind of delivers uh, the menu order and then steps away from the process. He's entrenched. He looks at the process with kids' eyes, but with strategic rigor as well. Um, he's an emboldened co-pilot as you make things. The best kind of client. Wow, John. That's pretty good. <laughs> Congratulations. Well, thank you, Jim. And uh, first of all, like I said, it's an honor to, to kind of talk to you and, and a tea shot at the same time. Uh, a tea is uh, a special person uh, to me. Um, he is a rare breed. Um, he is a mix of poet meets prophet. Um, and as a creative, uh, he is somebody that you can go to with the most complicated problems. And his ability to find a solution is, is some of the best that I've ever seen. And I can give you 10, 20 examples of, of how he's done it. Uh, but, but, but the one thing I'd really like to kind of share on a T is his ability to take things that normal creatives would consider static. They would consider them two-dimensional. And he has a way to turn things into 3D, 4D, 5D. And I'm talking like typography. I'm talking like print ads. I'm talking about uh you know, old kind of stuffy events, trade shows. He's got an ability to take things and make them so experiential. And I think it, I think it goes back to his ability to mix uh, his ability to be a prophet and a poet at the same time. And he has, he's made me a better person being around him. And it's an honor to talk to both of you. How did the two of you meet? Maybe you, maybe you have a different story here. I don't know. But uh, T, why don't we go back to you? How did you both meet? What was the circumstance? 
Yeah. So we met in um, a pressure cooker of a pitch situation. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to disclose this, but, um, you know, Digitas is a longstanding relationship with Whirlpool brands um, and with John's help has reached high altitudes on brands like Whirlpool proper, you know, getting a Grand Prix at Cannes a few years back for care counts, uh, a first of its kind mission in schools, um, clean laundry and fighting school attrition in the process. Um so lots of great efforts there, but the Gen Air portfolio, uh, which we're talking about today, um, is distinctive. It's its own universe. Um, it's experientially maybe more affluent in its bent. Um, and they were looking to take some detours. And I think so uh, despite the existing and strong foundation of that relationship, they were they were looking under every stone to see, you know, how do they unlock this? I was part of New York squad at the time that was part of the Digitas part. There's a great team on and bench in Chicago, but I was brought to create a convergent approach to pitching this thing. And I met him in the pitch room, uh, which can be a bit of a pressure cooker, but um, I'll tell you pretty much from the first minute uh, in conversing with him, just, just the, the, the body language, the kind of intensity, the kind of uh, reverence for what we were doing uh, was very apparent out of the gate. Um, and I felt like, I felt like I was in, uh, I was on a launch pad for something, uh, that was very worth my time out of the gate. And so, and it kind of grew from there from that day. So how was John in the pitch? Amazing. I mean, in terms of the level of feedback, the level of engagement, not to detract from any of my other <laughs> amazing and luminary clients, but there was, there is something so lean forward about John, even in the, you know, there, there is a bit of poker face, as you know, that exists in such settings that you have to conduct. I mean, uh, these things are increasingly consultant led often. There is a, there is a wall uh, around the kind of uh, back and forth that, that's sometimes there, um, imaginary or otherwise. But with John, it never felt that way. I mean, he had, he had entrenched relationships with many of the great leads in Chicago. And so that maybe helped, but um what you appreciate with John out of the gate is he's always John. He shows his cards. Um, you all, you're, you never mistake his sense of ambition for what he's trying to do. And he'll engage you with that. He'll push you on that. He'll engage you with that. And so as a creative, you know, there's a lot of different types of makers and creators out there. Some like to go, almost go off to the cave and make things um, like, like the quiet time and that sense of isolation time to think. My personal style is I love the energy of bouncing off of somebody, the collaborative spark, you know, uh, just playing that hot and cold game until you arrive at something special. And John's up for that. And so like immediately I found uh, a partner in crime <laughs> in this game. John, do you remember this the same way? Yes, very much. You know, I think uh, T nailed it and it was a pressure cooker, no doubt about it. I mean, what he didn't say is we were globally looking for, uh, you know, one of the best agencies in the world. And we were, we, we were started with 43 and we obviously narrowed it all the way down to one uh, to, to win this business. It was a significant investment for our organization, uh, especially on the product development side. And we were looking for three things. We were looking for, um, we were looking for design savviness because this this audience that we were looking to age our business down to was heavily influenced by designers and architects. Uh, we were looking, looking for technology progress. We knew that part of our depositioning element was going to come through the technology, not only in the, the path of purchase by which people learn about these luxury appliances, but also through appliances become more and more uh, connected and, and digital in their, in their performance capabilities. And then lastly, um, this is a you know, top 3% of wealth earners in the country. So we had to have a sense of high society swagger and do it in a way that wasn't stuffy and of the old guard or of, the, of, of what we were calling kind of old money or old luxury. Um, Jim, we were looking to age our business down from 65-year-old plus all the way down into the late 30s, early 40s. So you know, 20 plus years, uh, not an easy feat uh, through repositioning by any means. And so... We had to find the exact right partner. And um, to be honest with you, in the early days of the pitch process, uh, there were some struggles. Uh, and when a T showed up on the scene, uh, we knew uh, that this was going to be different. We knew that he was from a different planet. Uh, and from then on forward, um, it became almost like a runaway train. And we went fast and furious. And we'll get a chance to talk about it, I think. But 
we left no stone unturned in this process and even got it to the point where I think culturally we had an impact externally and internally. And we started breathing the ethos of the brand strategy. So, John, let's, let's talk about the case now. I mean, it's Gen Air, a 74-year-old brand that started with a big idea and, a, and an innovator and, and was very much a kind of a hip brand when it began 74 years ago. I want you to take us back to the beginning of the decision to restage this brand. And what was the catalyst for that? You know, sometimes it's easier to let things just go than to step back and do something provocative, which you have done. So take us back to the beginning. What was the compelling business case? What was the catalyst? Why did you engage 43, you know, different agencies to pitch it? How did you work this through your management team? So take us back to the beginning. Yeah, for sure. I think, um, you know, uh, Whirlpool has done through the, you know, last, you know, couple of years or so, just a phenomenal job of managing the portfolio of brands. We've got an iconic portfolio of brands from Gen Air to KitchenAid to Whirlpool, Maytag, Amana. And we're very inclusive uh, among society in that we've got the obligation to serve all walks of life through our portfolio of brands. And we take that, we take that uh, with pride, uh, that, that, on, that, that obligation. Um, and when you look at Gen Air, um, you know, typical portfolio management, we had a little bit of crossfire inside uh, our own swim lanes. Um, and we had to take, you know, the highest end of our portfolio and we had to push it up higher. Uh, by pushing it up higher, it was going to let other brands breathe more and give them more space to, 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 for them to self-actualize. And so um, it became very clear in order for us to, to move up and repositioning from what I would call low-end luxury to high-end luxury. I mean, true academia fashion, you know, to the consumer, Gen Air is the brand of reasonably, you know, uh, due to these benefits. Um, we had to change the consumer profile, as I said, aging it down over 20 years. We had to add in um, um, some benefits. And ultimately, the reasons to believe came back to the founder, uh, Lou Jen, and kind of how he started. He was a rebel innovator, um, kind of, you know, accredited with, you know, helping lead to the open floor concept and kitchens that we know and love to this very day through some of his innovations. And the stimulus was that we were lacking on product. We were behind. And in order for us to go out and elevate the brand to the status that it deserved, that Lou set it for the path he set it on, you know, 60 plus years ago, he, uh, we, we had to go back and we had to fix our product and we couldn't just copy. We couldn't do what the competition was. You know, we don't need the same, we don't need a, a replicate of what the market leader is. We need an alternative. We need a substitute. And we found um, global trends, uh, changing preferences in the, the affluent community, changing preferences in the design community that opened up a door for Gen Air to be Gen Air um, and tap into this earned luxury mindset where consumers were looking for things unique and different. They were looking for things that were more digitally progressive. They were looking for to make their own choices, not to to do what their parents did, but they earned their way, they earned their wealth, and they were going to choose what they wanted. And it was a reflection of their personal style. And Gen Air became kind of, you know, that became the frame by which we went in. Ati, you won the pitch. Congratulations. A few years back. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 43 com 42 competitors. Could you talk how you got the relationship with John and his team off to a great start after that high-pressured pitch? And so tell us about the early days of the relationship. How did you establish the trust, the confidence in each other? Absolutely. So I think that, again, I got to credit John in this case because there was such um, a reverence for the staging of the assignment. So meaning, you know, um, they can almost, this can process, the process to get to work and sometimes be like checking a number of boxes. You pass a number of gates and you come out the other side um, with a thing. Um, but I, it was the it was maybe the most potent uh, time in my career where you felt the sense of like, this was an important mission. We're in Benton Harbor, Michigan. You know, we're launching a brand um, that had a rebel heyday. You know, um, it's just worth touching on. I, I'd never worked in the appliance category before, but uh, in hearing the origin story that John shared with the brand, Lou Jen, a guy who comes up with this um, downdraft system for the oven range that sucks all the gaseous fumes into the machine, which that sounds like just a feature, but actually fundamentally changes American home design because you no longer had to have an overhead vent. So it cleared a barrier. It was like this rebellious move in home design it was far more than just an oven. And that's the kind of rebel roots of this brand. It's like tearing down walls from day one. And I think that what John did 
in the staging of this assignment was right from the gate, there was a sense of uh, a covenant almost, not to use religious terminology, but a, there was a covenant of a set of a, a plateau of trust in which, you know, he had me from almost day one of the assignment, as soon as we won the pitch, stand in front of his entire crew of designers, marketers, sales agents um, in Benton Harbor, you know, my first visit to Benton Harbor. And you're staring out at a room of people um, and watching them light up as we present uh, this new operating system for the brand called Bound by Nothing. Um, and Bound by Nothing um, was something. So that staging to what you're asking, Jim, it was the staging of that moment, you know, like it was a launch pad moment. It was a sense of like, this is the mission we're about to embark on. Uh, in the EQ in the room, beyond the, the IQ of the assignment, you know, there was there was a there was an establishment of the world we were all going to inhabit. This was our bubble, and we were all going to exist within it. And we talked almost in mythological terms about how we were going to tear down the walls of old luxury. That we were going to go up against a number of competitors who have become almost part enfranchised in this kind of luxury loop. When I say $2 million condo, you know, you say sub-zero because that's, that's no contractor, no specifier, no architect has ever gotten pushed out of a job for putting in a miele or putting in a, a sub-zero. It's a loop that's hard to break. Um, and I think that that's, there was this mythology around luxury conventions that we were going to shed together. We we're going to take pride in the machines and, you know, proof is in the product. And these were machines worth seeing. So, I mean, again, as someone who had never, who was someone like, you know, who lives in Brooklyn and knows what they're looking at um, and has an eye for design, but had no, no awareness of the Gen Air brand and seeing these machines. And they were in stark contrast in certain cases to what's out there. Um, and it's like, so a sense of pride about artwork, you know, you're talking about machines in the thousands of dollars that deserve to be seen, but had to break through this complex, had to unbind people from this kind of uh, set in stone ways. And so there was almost a spiritual quality of what we were doing and starting the conversation with that, like, this is what we're doing is everybody on the same page, seeing faces light up in a room like that um, about the mission we're about to embark on. It just set the pH in the water from then on out, you know, for what we were going to do. Um, and it was unlike any other like launch moment I've been a part of in my career. That word covenant's an interesting one. You know, when Lexus started as a brand, 33 years ago or so, the dealers and the company signed a covenant together. And, yeah. and the thing is still alive. And, and what they try to do as a brand is keep the covenant alive, but keep innovating you know, uh, against the covenant. So anyway, it's a, it's a powerful word. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. Now, tell me, you threw out this term, you know, a bound by nothing operating system. Yeah. So yeah. I'd like you to unpack that a bit for us. You know, what does that mean? Why was that important? When you say operating system, you know, what does that mean? So maybe, John, I'll turn it back to you because I know you, you work together in this. So give us a bit of perspective on this bound-by-nothing operating system. Well, um, so I'm going to share a little bit of kind of the, the, the background and the data that goes in to a certain point. But we can never take it across the finish line. I need, I need a partner on the other side that's going to come in and turn it into magic. And, and, and I'll be honest with you, I've always been inspired uh, you know, going back to what you did at, you know, P&G to, you know, some of the marketers at Beach by Dre a couple of years ago to some of the Dove work, um, you know, years ago is still in effect today. I've always been drawn to this, this marketing head of career, head of marketing, head of uh, creative relationship. I've, I've never understood why, you know, sometimes kind of agencies are shunned aside uh, when oftentimes a lot, it's, it's the client that really hasn't done the due diligence on the inputs. And so my, my, my part of this deal was to, was to get to the strategy with my team to a point where the, the creative team could take it over and turn it into something that is 
you know, hugely differentiated, hugely on point and changes the way people think and feel instantaneously about the brand. And so from a consumer standpoint, as I talked about earlier, we, we, we drew on this idea through, you know, through a lot of data that we were digging into that with this audience, we called it the modern luxury discerning indulger, that common experiences were not good enough. And so um, at first glance, you know, things that we think are normal and we aspire to, to this clientele, they're actually like so far ahead that that's considered, you know, not good enough. And so it was, you know, this insight of common experiences are not good enough was we were able to translate that into product development, into experience design, into events, into service models, because anything that competition did or anything that was seen as normal was just not the right answer. So we had to do everything had to be of the uncommon and it caught people's attention as we translated it into bound by nothing. Um, from the cultural standpoint, we dug. I mean, I'm, we're very much believers in tying into culture uh, the right ways where it makes sense with your brand, especially the origins of your brand. It's a little bit of, you know, I, I'll be honest with you, I learned a little bit of being around Crispin Porter Brogunski in the early 2000s, and they were very tied to like the heritage of brands. And um, so, so, excuse me, tying your heritage, your brand to culture in the modern day. And so culturally, we saw a lot of luxury brands were challenging the status quo. They were doing things were, that were different. And you know, Tesla was an inspiring brand. Um, Louis Vuitton was an inspiring brand. Um, obviously, Apple's an inspiring brand for us. Um, and they're, they're doing things that are different. And that's actually what's turning into status. Um, and then when we look at our category of luxury appliances, there was a lot of resting on the laurels. There was a lot of opportunity for us to bring this mindset of progress. And it makes sense for us because the more we, you know, bring value and worth to the appliance industry, A, it does good for the world because our appliances go out there and they help people cook, clean and wash. They, they bring pride to kitchens and entertainment. And, um, and then B, you know, we bring more, we can remove more friction out of the process of cooking uh, meals, of flowing ingredients into the home. Um, and so it was the, the, the category kind of point that we were working off of was we wanted to shift the idea away from kind of boredom and resting on your laurels to rule breaking. Like that was in the strategy. We wanted to break the rules and, you know, to a creative, you know, designers around the product, to creative, you know, you know, developers, you know, like a T and, and his crew, like we're asking you to break the rules all in the, all in the honor and spirit of driving progress. And then. It all makes sense when you tie it back to Lou, the founder. This is what the guy did. He was, uh, you know, one of the the, the original uh, gangsters of, you know, defying the physics inside of the the kitchen that led to the open floor concept. The fumes were supposed to go up. He sucked them down, as a T talked about, and so it netted us out in this 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 fight of driving an appliance experience revolution across everything we did. And that, you know, our way in was to become leaders, not followers. We're going to lead the industry and create value and worth for the a luxury appliance industry and let it cascade down across the portfolio. And so that's where I bring it to a team. Born to lead, not follow. And his team, I'll let him take it from here. You know, that was only half of the equation. The other half is what him and his, and his crew did. Well, what I want to talk about now is this is a brand restage and a big one. And most yeah. of them don't work. You know the data as well as I do. This one obviously did. You want a gold FE, which we'll get to in a few minutes. But I want you to talk about how this client agency relationship resulted in that. What was different about this one between the two of you, between your teams? You know, you have a lot of great clients at T. I know that. John's worked with lots of great agencies. This one went above and beyond. What was it about this relationship that enabled or inspired those results? Ati, why don't we start with you? I'll start there. I think I think it's some of the things we touched on and a few others. So I think that I think a lot can be said about the theatrical staging of an assignment. You know, so from out of the gate, if a client takes part in giving this an underscore, a sense of importance, a stage to paint a picture, to take time to go through the heritage, not because it's a cop, you know, a body copy, uh, you know, uh, blurb in a brief. But to take through that or as if, as if you're talking about Star Wars, you're talking, you know, there, there's there's a, get into the origin story, the mythology of this brand, what they sought out to do. Uh, take the time, you know, even if it's a placebo, uh, which you can argue where you said, but if you believe in brand archetypes or not, but taking time to figure out where you're coming from um, to set the tone and mood to talk about points of inspiration, um, to take people out of their typical uh, conference room setting 
and put them in the ones that, you know, on the floor with the machines. That kind of, uh, that kind of staging brings an importance to it. It brings a drama. It starts painting a picture of the stories we might tell about the ways we might activate. And so I think that was a hugely important ingredient. The second is, and I'm sure you've heard of this, I think that I'm a big believer in when you, having a client who um, is, feels very comfortable in the space of creative discourse, you know, who doesn't necessarily always want to, they don't want to like micromanage you into a little box or a pixel, but they do want to have healthy discussions about what this should sound like, what the sensorial qualities of the work should be like, you know, what, what in their mind's eye is that does, does the target look like? Like all of these considerations, paint the world, taking time to paint the world, you envision with the agency, and then of course to change scenes, to change costume, to change in a figurative way, to make changes as we go, but to take part actively in that. Um, takes a certain level of acumen, like John is passionate about, you know, the space of marketing and comms and experience. And so you could feel palpably, his, you know, his interest in, in getting into those spaces, but it's incredibly useful. And then I think it's just like, you know, that sense of transparency throughout the process. Like, um, you know, when things, there, there were moments where, you know, things weren't coming together in certain cases, or things might be coming slower in terms of the convergence of all these practices. And or, or in other cases, there might just be a late night uh, lightning bolt of excitement about something we could do or chase down. And I think that kind of transparency, adjacency, on phone, just on text, um, nature of the relationship adds so much. We're not just meeting gates with the next deliverable. It's iterative. Um, it's sharing the road, you know? And I think finally, the last thing I would add is um, ambitious North Stars about what we want to accomplish out of the gate. So painting a picture of what success looks like beyond what, you know, what is the lift and con uh, retail conversion we want? Like, what stages do we want to take? John, from day one, you know, said uh, pretty much from the day when we kicked off the summit, it's like, I want to win a gold FE for the, uh, you know, I want to talk about our five-year success story, our one-year success story, our 10-year success story, and what that roadmap looks like. And setting ambitious goals for all of us, and then not just setting those markers, and intangible, elusive things, like, particular awards, particular press that we'd like to pick up and things like that. But then um, putting on him to the point of covenant earlier, putting on a, his organization and his team also to show up uh, to make those conditions possible. It was a pact we all collectively signed up for. And that just like, you know, you know what you're getting into. You know the trajectory. There's autonomy to kind of paint where we exactly head. But the trajectory has been set. John, how do you react to that? Yeah, you know, um, my response is um, just in terms of that relationship, just to set a little bit of stage here, we had done some research with designers um, and we got some pretty tough feedback. Uh, we had heard that, uh, you know, they don't specify this brand. They're frumpy, Midwestern, no style. And so <laughs> we knew we were up. We were in for an uphill battle, no doubt about it. And uh, the, the product development side of the organization was was really not willing to settle for anything but the best. And so we were, we were doing the heavy lift to get this unbelievable product ready to go out the door. And there's no way in a million years that we were going to let, we were going to shepherd it out to market in a way that wasn't going to land with impact. We had, we had the obligation to the engineering community to, to bring it to the market in a way that connected with these designers and instantaneously changed the way that they thought and felt about the brand. And deep in, I think, all of our hearts, we believe, I think you, Jim, I think myself and Atiyah, I think we, we would all agree that creativity has the power to change the way that people think and feel. And we were not willing to just stop at creative ideas. We wanted it to translate to results. We wanted creativity to be held accountable to results. And so when, when the product hit the market under the, you know, under the operating system of Bound by Nothing, that designers would look at it, see it their attention would be caught. And then they leaned in, they touched it, they realized that we delivered on their expectation. And so that, you know, in order to get there, you have to, you have to put big, hairy, audacious goals in front of the team. You have to believe in them. You have to, there's a lot of things that a team brought to the table that made my knees shake. I thought, oh my gosh, like this is, <laughs> this is my career on the line here. But, you know, had wise mentors in the past that say, when you feel like your career is on the line, that's when you're going to do the best work. And never once did a T and his team ever not show up with a, a, a 
expectation that they can't solve the problem through the power of creativity. And so from there, it became a trust. Um, and, and, and the one other layer I put in there beyond, you know, on top of the trust is the, the like, we got your back covered. We're, we're, we're not going to let each other fail through this process. And when, when we start to take on some of the turbulence, because remember, we're, we're a portfolio of brands. So as we're marketing to different segments of the market, some of our other segments are, you know, it's not for them, right? And it became a real kind of upside down mental kind of experience for me personally. T, I don't know if you remember, but, you know, we were marketing to an audience that we hadn't tapped into in the past. And here for the first time, we were getting their attention, um, this kind of Midwestern, you know, brand. Um, and I almost got, we got to the point where we realized when you heard a little bit of, you know, had a little bit of heat coming in, you realize you may have been actually connecting with the market audience. And we look at some of the sentiment scores maybe through the roof and some of the preference lifts and purchase intent lifts um, through the design community. We knew we were kind of on the mark, even though it was different for all of us that had worked on maybe some of the other aspects of the portfolio, you know, a trust and a willingness to kind of hold hands and lean in together. You know, I want to underscore something you both said. I, I looked at your Effie submission, and you had the actual voice of the desired customer in that submission. And they were saying really tough things about your brand yes. and your company. But, you know, that's our role to bring honesty forward, to see the world as it is, and, to, and then obviously to dream beyond that. But I think the harsh reality you painted for your teams, who doesn't want to act on those sentiments that you hear from the people you're trying to? To be to be relevant for, so good for you, and I think that's that's a, that's a huge lesson for everyone listening. Hey, I want you to now get into some of the details of how you work together. You talked about trust, John, but I want to get into what sort of rituals did you have? What habits? How how often did you talk together? What kinds of things did you talk about? So tell us a little bit more the pragmatics or the specifics of the relationship that resulted in this great work. Yeah, I think it's, I think if I can start, I think it's in the, in the most micro aspects of the thing, of, of, of the way we engage that the, the, the macro of it becomes true. So I think that, you know, every aspect of this was something we tried to give um, a new rhythm to. So for instance, the lexicon of engagement, you know, so we didn't talk about making uh, commercials or films, you know, we talked about, we changed the language. So we said, we're going to make statements, you know, and when we set forth with um, the Anthem launch for this, um, it was unlike anything else in the appliance uh, category, love it or hate it, or somewhere in between. Um, it painted a very dramatic arc about breaking from this programmed world of luxury into a new world of progress and, and freedom. And it does so with a, a dr dramatic and sensorial kind of arc. Um, and it very different, but, you know, it was a, it was, it was born out of the notion to make a statement, not just, you know, let's, let's make, make film. When we talked about physical experiences, you know, we talked about awakenings, right? So we changed the lexicon and we just agreed as part of that pact, we weren't going to talk about physical experiences showing up at trade shows, right? We were talking about, uh, you know, these th a different kind of awakening. And so what resulted from that, that kind of discourse is when we showed up at the architectural Digest show, which is a big to do in New York, very clicky for the design community architects. Um, a lot of numbers get discussed. A lot of people get wined and dined. Uh, and it can be it can be a setting, though, where you could just fall right into the, the same old pathways. Uh, and, you know, you, you'll see cooking demonstrations, making pancakes or you know, uh, you know, little uh, hors d'oeuvres uh, as, as the wine gets poured. We did something starkly different. We showed up uh, to the whole point of an awakening with this monolithic black box uh, that was actually inside was a labyrinth, you know, where at every turn of this multimedia labyrinth, you were unbound from one convention of the world of luxury. So, you know, whether it was rigidity or false idols, meaning taking a stab at some of our competitors that are known for almost um, their signature, the signature design touches that people just kind of that cause followship as they do in other categories like fashion. But you would walk, it, it was like on a, unlike anything else. It was, an, you know, this foreboding monolithic black box you walked in. Um, and I, I don't want to call it a theme park because it was, it was more serious in tone, but it was, um, it, was, it was a happening. It was like a gallery experience and uh, experiences mostly set up for exhibition spaces and tra the trade show vibe. 
And so that kind of the changing of the language, you know, we didn't talk about brand acts, we talked about rights. So we used to, we used the language of the of solemnity, you know, like this kind of uh, reverence for what we were trying to do, taking this brand for the Midwest that had been scarred with this, right from the designer and community's mouth of being a frumpy Midwestern brand. May I think that's it? You know, I think Jen Air is frigid air, that kind of attitude, um, and just taking detour. So I think that I think. The way we talked about what we were doing, the mood we set, the EQ, even more so than the IQ, I think led to many of the choices we made along the way. And as John said, we were walking a very tight rope. You know, uh, this is a make or break moment. We were on a limb with a community they'd never really connected with on this level before. And it takes risk. And so the other thing I'd applaud John is the, the bravery to keep going, even when there were moments where, <laughs> as he was saying, it was a bit apocalypse now. Like there was some moments where it's like, are we doing this right? Have we gone nuts? Um, but the proof was in the pudding based on the reactions from the design community, what we did. Could I hold on that uh, thought for a moment? You know, we've all done a lot of brand restages. They have their ups and downs. They have their moments, the apocalypse now moment. You know, the oh shit moment, the what did we yeah. do moment or what are we about yeah. to do? So maybe, John, I'll punt it to you. Could you talk about one or two of those moments when it just thought like, uh, you know, you were losing your confidence or you had a setback and how you dealt with that, how you dealt with each other and your teams? I can remember a setting where we were looking at the kind of final concepts going out the door. And um, upon review and final approval, uh, I can remember almost being able to cut the tension in the air. Everything I was seeing up on the screen, it could be every second that was coming across the video, like it was tied to a piece of data. It was tied to the broader narrative. It was tied to the story. Everything was placed. And while it made people uncomfortable. You, you couldn't deny the message. The message was undeniable and what it, he kind of set, set us up. And so I just remember, it's probably the one time I can remember in my life where like, you know, tension, I could almost physically see it. Um, and so, uh, you know, you know, we, we were fortunately, um, you know, un understood that the, that like bringing the new rise in the war product lines, 200 new products to the market. The last thing we could do was bring them to the market and just fall flat. So John, let me interrupt you there. The tension was in, internal to you or your management or your team. Where, where was the tension coming from? The tension wasn't at all with the team. I mean, we were kind of very mission focused. Um, I mean, we were doing things like, you know, being very, very scrappy with our resources, flying to, uh, what were we, to Kosovo? With Belgrade, Belgrade, Montenegro, yeah. <laughs> Belgrade, uh, to make, you know, to get to the quality of film that this designer would expect to, uh, to deliver within, you know, you know, every, every organization's got resource constraints. So very mission focused. Um, in fact, uh, Jim, the operating model bound by nothing, the thing that I think was absolutely amazing, why I believe that that great brand strategies have the power to deliver the business results is it operationalized itself inside our own team, internal team, external team. And we're talking anywhere from like a hundred people that were directly touching the creative idea to 5,000 people that were developing the products. Um, and it was touching everybody and they were all moving, uh, in the direction of, 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 of the mission of, of, of tearing down the walls and the, for fearless progress for the appliance industry. Um, and that we had that obligation. Uh, but the tension in our room is, you know, when you're about to go external and you want to get cross off and approvals with all the stakeholders, they're going to ask questions from sales to, uh, you know, um, you know, to legal, to compliance, to HR, to all the, you know, we were marketing to a consumer audience that we really had never tapped into and needed to get their attention. So I think that's kind of where the tension was. And we had courageous leaders that were in that process that knew that, um, you know, we had built the product and if we didn't get the attention of the designers and it fell on, you know, deaf ears, then, uh, you know, we weren't servicing the, the, the work that had been went in for years to get this amazing product lineup out. So that was that was one, Jim. But if I could flip the script for a moment, um, when we were uh, in New York City rolling out and we were at downtown New York at Capital, IT remembers this and. Uh, we were bringing the entire Bound by Nothing concept to life with a, an exclusive of some of the new product that hadn't been launched yet. And 
We had uh, design, architect, trade community all together at Capital, and we started to bring out the, the meaning behind Bound by Nothing, and they were running the Anthem film, and we're watching it on the big screen, and I remember like having almost an out-of-body experience, almost like watching from afar uh, the reaction from the people that were, you know, these are the people that called the brand frumpy, Midwestern, no style, to all of a sudden saying, that's the Louis Vuitton of appliances. That is... Those are sexy appliances. I'm going to start specifying this. In fact, I had this contract. I'm going to shift it over to Gen Air. When's the product coming out? Seeing that happen all within the same evening was, it was, was just an out-of-body experience that like, I, I just go back and say, you can't deny the power of creativity. It has the, it has the power to change the way people think and feel uh, done the right way. And I think, I think those are kind of two uh, tensions points, one positive and one kind of very experiential personally, Jim, that, that I'd share. I'm going to flip the script here for a minute, too. You talked about getting thousands of people moving in a very different direction in a Midwestern company. What, have you, what did you learn about change management? Because this was not an incremental brand restage. This was a brand restage that was dramatic, bold, uh, provocative. How did you lead your t- internally, both of you, to, for everyone to see what you were seeing and to make this move uh, in, a fair, in a 180 direction. Yeah, a T real quick. Um, on my side, um, you know, uh, we, we had to understand the role of the branded portfolio. And if you remember when I said mm-hmm. in the beginning, we, you know, from a portfolio management st- standpoint, it was unclear. And so once we solidified the role, the value that it can create for the broader company and why everyone should care, um, it's a lot of kind of getting out and sharing internally the message and what we're trying to do. And when you do that, you got to be consistent. You got to be so consistent in your message. It can't be uh, misinterpreted because, uh, and that's why I love archetype mapping because a lot of times archetype mapping allows different functions of finance, of, of engineers, sales, uh, merchants, brand, product, like all to kind of feel the direct, like what the meaning behind that archetype is, even though you might not be able to explain it. So really taking the time to, to share the strategy and why we as an organization need to mobilize behind it, being consistent with, 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 with the message. Um, and then, you know, holding ourselves accountable, I think. I think, you know, you do have to start making some tough calls. You have to make trade-offs when you're, you know, bending metal and being consistent. In, in you know, we had a lot of unsung heroes that went above and beyond to, to deliver on the promise of the brand. They, were, they believed in it. And I think when you get there and you get to that point, you start to create you know, a sense of momentum, Jim. And things eventually start to get a little, bit, a little bit easier. And when you start to see some of the positive results coming in and the responses from the design community and from our end users and celebrities asking for our products and um, you know, it, it, it starts to, it starts to be kind of almost a culture. Um, in early days, we had a hard time hiring brand managers. We would have a role open and we get four or five people in the later days after Bound by Mountain was out there and a new product was hitting the market, a brand manager role would open up and we'd have, we'd have 70, 80 applicants in there trying to get on, on this business. So, so I think, you know, that's a little bit of what I saw from my side. It, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think we had to have dreamers and students of the space as part of the team. So meaning we had to, you can't um, mess this up. You know, it's too, it's too big um, a rock to take uphill. The rebirth of a brand for the biggest appliance company in the world, um, you know, and their flagship company at that. This is not like a little beta experiment you're running off in a corner. It means something. And so in the combination of team, uh, we made sure that we had um, veterans on the Chicago team who had taken Whirlpool Enterprise to the highest heights, who knew the business, who had John's trust, who knew how to move metal in that sense. And then we brought people like myself who came from the outside and brought perspective on the intangibles and elusive aspects of like, you know, moving in the luxury set, where we were going to draw inspiration from. Uh, we did our homework even on the dreamer side. We looked at, you know, what was going on in the world of fashion. We looked at uh, you know, Jenner is a brand is a is a rebel brand with a dark heart. They make an obsidian interiored refrigerator, a black interiored refrigerator. This is not like uh, incremental kinds of thinking. You know, they they took away the they took away the ventilation above and you know made the downdraft. This is like this is rebel thinking. This is and it's got a 
that's got a bit of a dark and mysterious heart, actually, you know. Um, and so we looked at designers like Alexander McQueen. We looked at, you know, artists in the art space like Damien Hirst, who made moves with diamond skulls and things. We wanted to find reference points that spoke to a certain um, deviation in affluent sensibility and answered, you know, we didn't want to have, the, we didn't want to portray this brand with bougie dinner parties and, you know, sunlit kitchens and, you know, floating geometries of fruit bowls. Like we wanted to find a new language, but while it was dreamt up, it was studied too. You know, we took from spaces where we knew money was moving, where affluent circles were congregating and that informed that. And so I think that to be prepared for the storm that is trying to like, you know, reignite um, a flagship arm of Whirlpool but do so with a sense of certainty, as much certainty as you can have when you're walking that tightrope that is creativity. Um, it's a combination of studiedness uh, and dreaming. And uh, I think with, with John's group and Todd, that's what we did. That's what we set out to do, even in the team structure. What was the archetype of Gen Air 10 years ago and what is it now? I think the, the original archetype of Jen Aaron Liu himself was was the rebel. I think uh, you know as it gone as it went through acquisitions from one company to another, it kind of lost its way a little bit. And when Rollpool got it in two thousand six through the Maytag acquisition, um, the, the spirit was there. It, it just hadn't been clearly articulated. And um, you know we were doing a lot of follower stuff to try to become you know part of that club, if you will. And when we came out and said you know. If you look at the history, this is a rebel history. I mean, by the way, you know, humankind moves forward through rebel behavior. Um, if you just Google search rebels, you'll see a lot of famous, like, wonderful people there. Uh, and, um, you know, there's a lot of study behind even, like, backward archetypes. The backward archetype to the rebels, the caregiver, which is interestingly, we've talked about the Whirlpool brand. So there's a lot of, like, connecting of strategies there. But, um, you know, when you looked at the product, you looked at when we were at our best, when you looked at, you know, where we had pride points, they were all rebel pay behaviors. They were doing things that drove value and worth forward, moved humankind forward. And so bringing together this notion of tearing down walls to create value internally, externally through fearless progress under the rebel archetype became something people could tie into. I mean, you can argue early days of Apple, early days of Nike. Uh, this is where they started. And there's even, you know, theories about there how rebels over time start to become heroes. And we hope someday to have that when you become such the market leader, you have that kind of challenge. So I think it always was, uh, Jim. And our, all we did was, was go back and pull the spirit of the brand all the way through to modern times and reposition it to this next new affluent consumer that has very different uh, values than maybe some of the more old luxury consumer we used to have uh, been marketed to. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, Visit cmo.deloitte.com. You won a gold Effie for this work. I saw a picture of you at the awards with your teams, smiling faces. And, and for our listeners, the gold Effie is the top award for marketing and creative effectiveness. I would like you to talk, both of you, about why that award was meaningful. Yeah, I'll, I'll start. I mean, I think, again, uh, it was a strange alchemy, this process, right? I mean, I've, I've worked on things where... We've had the honor of winning a gold Effie or winning, taking top stages in other shows. Um, but maybe with knowing even more clearly where you were headed because you knew the boundaries. But we were, this was bound by nothing, you know? So this was kind of like, this was, this was, this was an, we talked about an operating system. It wasn't just a campaign. It was an operating system that was almost transient, following this group, this design community and awakening them at different moments, doing something different in New York versus Los Angeles, but maintaining something true about that world. It was a tightrope, but I think that it goes to show the rigor that John put forth in the ignition point for this assignment, that this understanding and this unpacking of who this discerning indulger is, getting really clear on the fact that this wasn't a mainstream play, you know, that this was like, you know, we were reaching a very elusive set of people that could change, you know, these are the people who make decisions about the million dollar develop, you know, million dollar, multi-million dollar developments and what have you. Um, very particular set of people. And all the rigor that went into staging that assignment 
And then so you have all the, you know, this, this strong foundational strategic heart, but then a client with the courage to go on a very uh, winding journey of finding out exactly the right kind of climate and the right sense of of a of a operating system because more than a campaign that you know isn't for everybody have the courage to see it through have the courage to see it intake with the very audience we set out to get and then watch the results come through i think that's what makes it special i think the fe is a testament the fact that you get such a award that you know in a steely way awards creative effectiveness the uh, work that works uh and do so in such a kind of place of imagination is uh is kind of a wonder for me John, how is it meaningful for you? Yeah, um, for me, uh, Jim, um, it takes a lot of time uh, and investment uh, of resources. Uh, and I, and I, I don't like the idea of investing resources in a certain direction if it doesn't lead to some tangible result. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think I, I'm always aspired to, you know, and, and you talk, you have a lot of people at your podcast, I think would align with this, but if I can, if I can, we could, if we as a team can put, put like work out in the world that drives value back to the organization that we work for and drives value to people out in the world, you know, force for good, force for profit, you know, that makes me happy and I'm willing to go above and beyond for that. And I think, you know, of any of the words, that's the one that probably would, would represent that. And we were sitting there and there was a lot of, uh, if you remember at T, there were a lot of bronze. They were not giving out golds lightly that year. And I thought, you know what, you know, the team works so hard. I mean, just a team of 5,000 plus people that we had the honor of representing out there in New York City. And um, I thought, you know, we're, it's already success that we're sitting here uh, and people are talking about the brand in a way that they weren't talking about it a year ago. And um, when they flashed up that gold on the screen, I thought, holy cow, like th this, this is work that works. And um, it's going to take time for us to self-actualize against, you know, our broader goals. You know, this this does this stuff doesn't happen overnight. You know, we've studied Audi on how long it took them to kind of make their mark. It takes a while. Um, it takes consistency. And, you know, part of our responsibility, too, as we move on is to pass some of that torch on, you know, to the next crew. And hopefully, you know, they've got the the direction and guidance to take it up to another level and continue to build and build and build in a direction. You eventually get the things like just do it out in the world or everyday care or um, you know, things like that. So I think, you know, being, seeing the work in the, the time and effort that we put into it translate to results uh, was what made it special. We would have a lot more brands in our industry growing faster if we had more relationships between clients and agencies like the one that we've been talking about. John, I would like you now to give some advice to creative leaders, to to uh, build a strong relationship with senior clients like yourself, if you have to give them a few pieces of advice, what would that be? Yeah, my advice to creative leaders would um, would to be careful not, especially during this time of the year, Jim, be careful to not be you know overly proud about creative ideas that really don't move people. You know, they might find them. They might find them interesting, and in the moment, a consumer might say, oh, yeah, cool, I like that. But if they can't tie it back to the brand, if they can't recall the brand, if it doesn't drive certain behavior shift in the direction of the business that your client represents, you're going to lose faith with them. And I think uh, T alluded to it a little bit earlier. We are fortunate enough to be working with creative uh, leaders. Uh, that understands that in different parts of the path of purchase, we've got to, you know, express the brand under bound by nothing in different ways to move designer perception through the path of purchase to ultimately recommend a Gen Air brand as opposed to some of our competition. And if you don't have a, a knowledge of what the client goals are, which is ultimately to drive business growth, you're going to lose them. Um, and I think the client has a lot of responsibilities as well. You didn't hire that agency. You didn't hire that creative leader to come in and just do what you told them to do. It would never work. You have to create a space, a, a sandbox for them to express their creativity, to try. You have to become a champion for them internally to get their ideas through. And, and by doing that, you know, creative respecting the business side, clients respecting the, the creative uh, iteration um, and having faith in your creative team and trusting them and championing their voice, I think you start to get to something uh, that can lead to a, a special relationship that serves both both sides of the equation. I tell you, you know this is coming. I would now like 
you to give advice to senior client leaders to work with creative people like yourself? Yeah, absolutely, Jim. I mean, I think it goes back to something we talked about earlier. I really think it's important to make a pact with your agency partners, to make that covenant, that sense of an establishment of trust out of the gate and underscore the importance of the shared journey you're about to go on. Uh, it's something that you feel almost physically in the room. You know, there's an electricity that happens. It's something that doesn't come through. It's not something like a box you can check off. It's the way you show up. It's the language you use. Um, it's the room you choose. These kinds of things add intangible value to the final outcome of something like this. Um, and that stage setting uh, that John as continues to foster is something that, um, you know, he has dozens of legions of fans who could talk about um, that. It's a commitment to like creating a setting where imagination can happen. And that's, it, it takes a, a certain reverence. And, that, and that's something that John brings, unlike any client, you know, I've, I've seen in the game. And I think the other piece of advice is like the uh, permission to be vulnerable. You know, I think that sometimes there's a sense of if you hold an agency at arm's length, um, things will come and, uh, you know, th th there's a kind of distance of the accountability, uh, a kind of fear of the accountability of the engagement. Um, but it's like there's nothing there's nothing when you have a tight bond, you know, that that that, that forms in the process where you feel duly responsible for outcomes. Um, you're going to get to some great places. So I think it's just like allowing yourself the vulnerability and permission to, to eye to eye with your agency in that way and to set even more, most importantly, if there's one thing that John does like better than anyone I've ever seen is dramatic staging for assignments. Um, you'll get work that takes imaginative detours. Um, you'll get teams that feel far more invested in the outcome. If they feel like, you know, Think about your favorite games of uh, imagination and pretend as a, as a kid, you know, being able to look at the world with that kind of wonder. Um, and then pairing that with the seriousness of strategy and know-how, um, it's, it's a different kind of engagement. You both work on other projects, other things, you know, since Gen Air. I'd like you to talk about one lesson or one feeling that lives on with each of you and other work that you're doing for your companies. Ati, why don't we start with you? Yeah, I think that um, one thing that we that we constantly upheld uh, in the world of Bound by Nothing and continue to can't wait to get out of post pandemic and see what what this what chapter two, three, and four look like against something like this. But I think that uh, the Bound by Nothing spirit, uh, that kind of business as usual isn't good enough, that incrementalism piece isn't good enough. It's something that carries through, and I think that when we find pockets to bring um, that spirit of detour taking uh, to the work. Uh, it's something that permeates. Anyone who's touched the Gen Air, I think people have come out of the school of Gen Air, you know, so people have graduated and gone on to do other things, but um, as, as, as palpable and pervasive. And the, I think the other thing is like, you know, since Gen Air and with Gen Air, we continue to like try to show up um, with more and more modes of creativity and marketing that are truly, you know, I don't have to use a buzz phrase, but transmedia, meaning, you know, it's the intersection of the narrative from film to the physical experience to every aspect and carry that through, how that you can bounce back, not just have a channel strategy, but have, and not just have journeys, because journeys is, is a kind of a washed way of talking about just, uh, you know, charts and maps. It's, but like, you know, have, have, a, have a real transmedia approach to, uh, to narrative is something we've tried to embody elsewhere. Uh, since the time of Gen Air, and uh, it's something we want to keep alive and well. John, how about you? What are you bringing forward in your life from Gen Air? For me, I think um, I think Bound by Nothing was unique in that it 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 was not integrated marketing communications from the beginning. It was never IMC. It was something different. Um, it wasn't the the you know the revenue generating media media plan that just hit on upper funnel marketing and, you know, tried to get awareness and kind of let, you know, let the rest of the path to purchase kind of, you know, happen as, you know, you'd hope. Um, it was something different. Bound by Nothing was this notion of bringing uh, the brand forward in making the process by which you learn about the brand, you engage with the brand, you're recommended the brand, you experience it at the showroom, it shows up to your house, it has a call center that supports 
the brand experience. If you have a problem, there's a service network that serves you. And ultimately, a lot of the product is connected and it creates new capabilities for the end user in their house. And so for me, Bound by Nothing pushed into this world of desired consumer experiences where it wasn't just a media budget. It became the alignment of internal functions against the idea of driving fearless progress in the appliance industry um, through holding, you know, being awoken to what the, the, you know, the end user expects, being defiant to drive value and being limitless in our approach um, and, you know, wherever it was in that journey. Um, and so, so I'm really inspired by, you know, the, the, as you bring technology capabilities, access to people, niche targeting, you know, we've got an opportunity to connect deeper and bring more empathy through the process to, to remove friction for our consumers more today than we ever have in the past. And so I'm very much kind of, you know, expect to see more of that full funnel marketing capabilities come into life. Uh, across the, you know, this, you know, CMO type activities. I think we're going to see more CXOs out there in the world as opposed to CMOs. And that's something that I think we laid that seed and bound by nothing. And I'm really looking forward across different industries to see who's doing stuff uh, like this and super inspired to, to continue to do that myself. Last question, John, you introduced a T as a poet and a prophet a few moments back. And we are in the season of the Can Lions Awards which is, along with the Effies, a major, major show or a major award show, awards festival in our industry. Ati, we've had a very unusual year. What do you think the themes will be from the winners at Cannes Lions this June? We are in the season of Cannes as we speak. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that we're going to see, um, well, it's kind of tough to say. I think we're going to see definitely the elevation of purpose, which continues to be uh, an ongoing theme. We, we, you know, just even in judging recent shows, um, including the Clios, I think purpose continues to be an anchor for the industry. I think we are in that existential cusp of coming out of COVID, fingers and toes crossed, um, where we've been put ourselves under the microscope, evaluating what we do and why. Brands going through that same motivational journey of, of reflection. And I think that people are reaching for something higher order in the meaning of what they're doing. And so I think we'll see uh, legions of great cases that, you know, really speak to something that transcends the day to day. Um, and just while in some cases moving product, aspiring for something greater. And so I don't think that's a net new uh, revelation on my part, but I think it's going to be a continued trend. And I think that like, yeah, I think we'll, in the efforts of marketers, I think we'll likely see things that were scrappy and kind of hacks, if you will, uh, strange detours that didn't cost millions upon millions to pull off and do. You know, we've seen some brilliant contenders in that space. Burger King, of course, time and time again, coming through with strange detours that don't, don't always cost a ton of money to do. But I think people will have a newfound respect for without legions and legions of celebrity dollars and things like that. Um, how do you take strange detours, hack the platforms in ways that shows marketing smarts and creative know-how? John, what do you think? Your predictions? Agility, authenticity, and courage. And I'm telling you, the brands that already had purpose alignment in their organization are the ones that were able to flex those values right there. Agility, courage, and authenticity. And so if your brand is not clear, you don't know what you want to be when you get older, you got to figure that out. Because when, you know, the world goes upside down, if you don't know what you stand for, you're going to be disoriented. But if you know what you stand for, you know who you are, you're not going to get caught on your heels. You're going to be able to get out on your toes and continue to drive your purpose forward through the products and services that you offer out in the world. So I think it's going to be a lesson on, you know, was your purpose tuned? Uh, when we got hit uh, through with COVID? And if the answer is yes, I think a lot of those brands probably did very, very well. John Atee, congratulations on this work. And this has been a, an inspiration and a blueprint for what's possible in, a, in our industry when clients and agencies work together as you and your teams have. So thanks for this guidepost, blueprint, uh, sunshine. <laughs> it's been a fabulous conversation. Congratulations. And thank you for sharing all of this with us today. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jim. And thank you, John. <laughs> I appreciate the time. This is a lot of fun. That was my conversation with John and a T. 
There were two powerful lessons in this one to apply in your business and in your life. The first one is the importance of portfolio management in a multi-brand company. Many of you are in multi-brand companies. John gives a lesson here how the Whirlpool Corporation thinks about their brands in a large portfolio appealing to different sets of consumers and customers, and they think very carefully about every brand's mission in that portfolio. Jenner was not playing high enough in the portfolio. They restaged the brand so that Jenner could occupy a very different space from their other brands. Second big lesson, the importance and the power of having a covenant, a pact between a client and an agency. This was a blueprint for breakthrough relationships between clients and agencies. This is the best part of our job. When you pair teams together with a common covenant, a common pact, ambitious goals, a sense of trust and commitment, anything can happen. You had a live example today on this brand that has accelerated its growth, attracted new customers because this team had a special thing going among them. It's the best thing we do in marketing. And the lesson is be sure your team has the kind of sense of trust and ambition and a pact together that this team created. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.